Welcome to our Soul Food Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. For the home group. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that once again we can listen to your word. We know that it is by that that we grow. And I pray that every heart in here would be touched by your word this morning. Have your way in every life represented. Asking your name. Amen. Thank you. One night, as the usher in a movie theater was looking over the crowd, he spotted a man who lay sprawled across three seats in the back row. He walked over and whispered to the man and said, Sorry, sir, but you're only allowed one seat. The man groaned but didn't move. Well, the usher became impatient. Sir, if you don't get up from there, I'm going to have to call the manager. Again, the man just groaned, which infuriated the usher. He turned and marched briskly back up the aisle in search of a manager. A few moments later, both the manager and the usher stood over the man. Together, the two of them tried repeatedly to move him, but with no success. Finally, they were forced to call the police. The police officer briefly surveyed the situation and think the man was probably drunk, said, all right, buddy, what's your name? Sam, the man moaned. Where are you from, Sam? The man in great pain said, the balcony. (laughs) It shouldn't surprise us that a fall from great heights would cause pain. And sadly, we're going to see this in the life of King David. Actually, chapters 13 through 20 is just one story. It's not a bunch of unconnected events. The adultery with Bathsheba leads to this, which leads to this, which leads to this. David reigns for 40 years, and for 20 of those years, he will be dealing with that very steamy night with Bathsheba. Warren Wiersbe writes, the events in chapters 13 and, un- and 14 unfold like a tragic symphony in five movements. From love to lust, from lust to hatred, from hatred to murder, from murder to exile, and from exile to reconciliation. The stories of chapters 13 through 15 is really basically the story of three different events. And they can be summed up with three words, rape, Revenge and rebellion. Amnon will rape rape Tamar and nothing will be done to punish him. And two years later, Absalom will take it upon himself to avenge the rape of his sister and have Amnon killed. And four years later, Absalom rebels against David in a coup to take over the throne. Over the next several weeks, my sermons are going to be very plain spoken in some ways, PG-13. But the Bible is not a children's book. 
It is a book for adults. Look at verse 26 with me. Now Joab fought against Rabah of the people of Ammon and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabah, and I have taken the city's water supply. Now therefore gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called after my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabah, fought against it, and took it. The last part of chapter 12 there is essentially a flashback. The siege of Rabah had begun about the same time David had first caught uh, the site of Bathsheba on his palace roof. And so when David had sinned with Bathsheba, Joab was fighting the Ammonites. And so verses 26 and through 31 pick up that story. And they recount what happened after David committed adultery with Bathsheba and had Uriah sentenced to death. So we see that little by little, the Israelite army had taken over this city. First the area where the royal palace stood, and then the section that controlled the city's water supply. And once the city's water supply was taken, it was pretty much over. Joab was now ready for that final assault that would bring the siege to an end. But he wanted the king to be there to lead the army. Now this is nothing new. You may have seen the old newsreel footage when General MacArthur stepped off the boat in the Philippines. The general in full military regalia steps off onto the beach in victory. The reporters were there taking pictures and cheering the brave general on. What they didn't tell you was that the Marines had secured that beach about three days earlier, and there wasn't a Japanese soldier within about 100 miles. That's kind of what's happening right here. Look at verse 30. Then he took their king's crown from his head. Its weight was a talent of gold with precious stones. And it was set on David's head. Also he brought out the spoil of the city in great abundance. And he brought out the people who were in it and put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them cross over to the brickwork. So he did to all the cities of the people of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Now that crown would have weighed about 75 pounds. To give you a reference point, the imperial state crown used by the people in England weighs less than three pounds. As I was preparing this, I looked up on Google some other things that weighed 75 pounds to sort of give us a reference point. Now imagine these things on top of your head. How much is 75 pounds? It's 247 wigs. Can you imagine how tall your hair would be? You look like a TV evangelist. <laughs> 54 Bibles, 300 sticks of butter, two and a half cinder blocks. Now, if those don't help you, being Calvary Chapel, this last one will. Do you know what else weighs 75 pounds? 37,500 plain M&Ms. It's good to know your congregation. Now, no king could wear a crown very long that weighed 75 pounds. So David's coronation was a brief but official act of state claiming his territory. Now, it is interesting to me that at this point, David was still living in his sin. Nathan had not yet confronted him, and David was still sure that his sins had been covered. And so here he is claiming outward victory, 
But in his soul, there was disharmony and defeat. This morning, if there is unconfessed sin in your life and yet things seem to be going relatively well, I would urge you to pay close attention. The last verse tells us that David put some of his prisoners of war to work with saws, picks, and axes, and others to making bricks. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. After this, Absalom, the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar, and Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Amnon was so distressed over his sister Tamar that he became sick, for she was a virgin, and it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. In chapter 13, we find one of the most disturbing stories in all of the Bible. And one of the most troubling aspects of it is is a story of like father, like son. It's a story that moves from love in verse 1 to hatred in verse 15. Amnon was the oldest of David's sons and the apparent heir to the throne. So perhaps he felt that he had privileges that the other sons did not have. But it was evil for him to nurture an abnormal love for his half-sister. And he should have stopped feeding that appetite the moment that it started. The sin was not only unnatural, but it violated the standards of sexual purity established by God's law. Incest, including half-sisters, was explicitly forbidden in the law. This is Leviticus 18.9. The nakedness of your sister, either your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether born at home or born outside, their nakedness you shall not uncover. Another thing that this passage teaches us is what we cultivate privately, we harvest publicly. David cultivated lust and abuse of power, and we're going to see that his sons also are going to cultivate lust and abuse of power. As I keep reminding us, our sins affect other people, and we always are going to reap what we sow. Perhaps Amnon was thinking, If my father committed adultery and got away with it, surely I can get away with rape. Such is the destructive power of a bad example. Proverbs 25.26 says, If the godly compromise with the wicked, it's like polluting a fountain or muddying a stream. And as one wise Christian put it many years ago, godly parents have often been afflicted with wicked children. Grace does not run in the blood, but corruption does. Now, whatever qualifications you would like to put on that statement, there is some truth in it. Now, of course, it's not mechanical. It's not inevitable that the children will display their parents' faults. But it is highly likely that they will be affected by them. And what Amnon felt was not love. It was just lustful desire And those are not the same things. What Amnon felt was exactly what his father had felt when he had seen from his rooftop the beautiful Bathsheba bathing. And tragically, Amnon was no better at dealing with his feelings than was his father. His desire played on him, as sexual desire can do when allowed to go unchecked, until he was sick 
with frustration. And the thing that he wanted to do to her at the end of verse 2 is all too obvious. Verse 3 says, But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. Now Jonadab was a very crafty man. And he said to him, Why are you the king's son becoming thinner day after day? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. So Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me some food, and prepare, prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. The Bible says that Jonadab was a crafty man. In other words, he was sly and he was slick. This is going to date me. But think of Eddie Haskell on Leave it to Beaver. He would come into the beaver's house, the picture of cordiality, and say something like, Mrs. Ward, your hair looks especially lovely today. But then upstairs, from out of her earshot, he would say something like, Man, what's up with your dopey mother? I've seen better hair in the shower drain. This is Jonadab. Now, Jonadab was also an enabler. Now, an enabler is someone who promotes a specific type of behavior in another person. And the term is most often associated with people who allow loved ones to behave in ways that are destructive to themselves or to others. Now, this would have been a great time for a godly friend to show up in his life and challenge him in love concerning the path that he was going down. Once again, I stress the importance of the people we surround ourselves with. Proverbs 13.20 gives us this warning. He who walks with wise men shall be wise, but the companion of fools will be destroyed. The number of men and women who sit in prison this morning, and those who are not just a physical prison, but prisons in their own minds, are sometimes there because they listen to the advice of an ungodly friend who instead of challenging them encouraged them in their sinful ways and now their lives are largely ruined because of it. If you have a friend or a family member who tries to encourage you to sin or to give it legitimization, stay away from them as much as humanly possible. If Jonah Dab were really wise and if he were a true friend, he would have given Amnon godly advice. Instead, he gave Amnon a plan which he could overcome the palace protocols and any other awkwardness so he could be alone with Tamar. Anybody in our lives who makes it easy for us to sin is certainly no friend. In fact, by following Jonadab's advice, Amnon's going to end up being a rapist, committing incest, and finally getting killed. Let me be clear this morning. Amnon lusted after his sister, even though he knew full well it would be impossible for him to ever wed her. Amnon knew that he could not marry his sister, yet he still burned with lust for her, even though he knew it was wrong. Amnon knew it was wrong, but guess what? So did Jonadab, and yet he says to Amnon, Tell me what's wrong, brother. You can have anything you want. What is it that you want? Amnon says, 
I want Tamar. Jonadab knew who Tamar was. And Jonadab also knew it was her relationship to Amnon's brother that made it impossible for him to do anything to her. Amnon was lovesick, more accurately, lovesick. But he couldn't act on this because in those days, all the king's sons would have been kept on one side of the palace and all the king's daughters on the other side. And as we are going to see, Amnon wasn't in love. He was in lust. And once again, there is a big difference. Because the Bible says love is patient and love is kind. And love does not seek its own. Lust, on the other hand, is impatient, and it wants what it wants immediately. Church, there is a colossal difference between love and lust. And too often the world confuses the two as the same thing, and it perverts what true love really is. Listen to these definitions. Lust is a psychological force producing intense warning for a person, object, or circumstances thus fulfilling the desires. What that's basically saying is, lust is where one covets something other than what he or she doesn't have. On the other hand, love is an interpersonal affection that is only relieved through a personal attachment. And this love perpetuates kindness, compassion, and affection and promotes the well-being of the other person. And so Jonadab gives Amnon a plan to trap Tamar. He may have given Amnon a wink of the eye as if to say, I think you'll figure out what to do from there. You can almost see Amnon grinning in response thinking, yeah, I can take it from there. Verse 6, please. Then Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let Tamar, my sister, come and make a couple of cakes for me in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Eat from her hand, it sounds like a baby goat. But anyway, verse 7. And David sent home to Tamar, saying, Now go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was lying down. Then she took flour and kneaded it, made cakes in his sight, and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and placed them out before him, but he refused to eat. Then Amnon said, Have everyone go out for me. And they all went out from him. When David came, he said, My son, what can I do to make you feel better? Amnon said, I don't know. I'm just so sick. I don't think I can make it. But if you would send my sister Tamar to come and cook me some of her famous chicken noodle soup, I think I might survive. But it's going to be close. Actually, it wasn't chicken noodle soup, it was cakes. It wasn't cakes like we think of cakes, uh, like Little Debbie's. It was, it was bread. Although, if I am ever on my deathbed, please bring me Little Debbie's. It only costs like a dollar and 68 cents a box, so bring more than one box. I mean, don't be a cheapskate. I'm dying after all. And believe me, I'm not the kind of cat you want haunting you either. <clears throat> Let's once again turn our attention to the Holy Scripture before I get in any more trouble. By ordering Tamar to obey her half-brother wishes, David sent her into pain and humiliation. And when two years later David allowed Amnon to attend Absalom's feast, he sent his firstborn to his death. You know what that tells me? 
David the deceiver is now the one being deceived. What has been the recurring theme over the last few weeks? We will always re we reap what we sow. And like in nature, we will reap more than what we have sown, whether those crops are good or evil. Everything in the, in the text suggests that Tamar was unaware of what was going on in Amnon's mind. Her immediate response to her father's instruction and her earnest devotion to the preparation of food indicate her innocence. The first unexpected development was Amnon's refusal to eat. And now he sends all of the witnesses out of the room. I wonder if Tamar's heart rate went up at this point. Listen, anytime you don't want someone to see you do something and you have to close a door, red flags and alarm bells should start going off. That's why it says that when we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we can have unbroken fellowship with both God and one another. We should all avoid any deeds that are done in darkness. Verse 10, Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them to Amnon her brother in the bedroom. Now when she had brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come lie with me, my sister. And she answered him, No, my brother, do not force me, for no such thing should be done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. And I, where could I take my shame? And as for you, you would be like one of the fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. Matthew Henry says that those who live in vileness think that others are as they are. What he's saying is, if I am willing to do despicable things, surely you are also. But listen to her protest. Such a thing is not done in Israel. God's people do not act like this. And if you were wondering, the Hebrew word for no means no. Now, in that culture, the violation done to her would basically remove her chances of getting married in the future, even as the daughter of a king. Don't do it, Amnon. It's wicked. It's wrong. Don't do it. Think about the effect on me. Think about the effect on you. You'll reduce yourself to the level of a wicked fool. So he even suggested if Amnon asked the king the king would allow him to marry her. Now I think this was just a last desperate ploy to distract him. She knew that God's law forbade a marriage between Amnon and Tamar. Right now, she is just trying to come up with anything to buy some time. She's probably thinking, if I can just distract him long enough, maybe I can make it to that door. Tamar tries to appeal to Amnon's logic, but he doesn't listen. He ignores all the warnings given to him. And that's what lust does. It does not listen to the warnings. It blocks out what's being said by a concerned parent, spouse, friend, or pastor. She then pleads with him to think of his own future. 
Think about what this man is getting ready to throw away. By result of lineage, he is in line to be the next king of Israel. But he is willing to throw away the kingdom for the momentary lust of the flesh. And we think, how stupid can any one man be? But are we not sometimes the exact same way? Well, we don't throw away a physical kingdom, but how often for the lust of the flesh do we choose that over the kingdom of God and the joy and the peace that comes along with it? I've told you in the past that I don't think there is any more miserable place than that of being a casual Christian because you have too much of the world in you to enjoy God but too much God in you to enjoy the world. I've been there, and I never want to go back. Verse 14. However, he would not heed her voice, and being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Arise, be gone. So she said to him, No, indeed. This evil of sending me away is worse than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. Then he called his servant who attended him and said, Here, put this woman out away from me, and bolt the door behind her. Any possible doubt about Tamar's role in the assault is now removed. Violated is a word that speaks of humiliation, oppression, and subjugation. It refers to Amnon's physical overpairing of Tamar against her will. Even the expression, lay with her, is made more assertive by the omission of the word with in the Hebrew. There was no with in what Amnon did to Tamar. Literally it reads, he lay her, which means he raped her. The language is brutal and brief, just as the action was. The moment this sex thing is over, Amnon realizes how much it's going to cost him, and he wants to now throw all the blame onto her. He thought it was love, but it was nothing but lust. And the bad advice he had listened to isn't going to help him very much now. The selfishness of his violation of Tamar had unmasked his delusion that he loved her. He could not even bear to have her in his presence any longer. To see her was to see his own shameful self-obsession and to be reminded of his sin. He therefore demanded that she get out. Now before he sinned, he wanted Tamar all to himself. But after he sinned, he couldn't get rid of her fast enough. This is, the, by the way, the reason why rapists will often kill their victims. Because when they've done what they've done, they hate themselves. And not knowing what to do with that hate, they transfer that hatred, frustration, and guilt to their victims. Amnon's disgust, which should have been directed at himself, was now turned on Tamar. He does not even use the word for woman. The Hebrew simply says, send this out of my presence. He won't even dignify her as a human being. He had used her. And now it's time to dispose of the trash. This is why it explains that Tamar accused Ammon of being even more cruel by casting her aside than by raping her. 
Having lost her virginity, she could no longer reside in the apartments with the other virgins. Where would she go? Who would take her in? Who would even want her? How could she even prove that Amnon was the aggressor and that she hadn't just seduced him? Now, I don't want to paint with a broom, but oftentimes we are wired in such a way where women will use sex when what they really want is love, while men will use professions of love when what they really want is sex. And the culture has perverted sex in such a way that its natural godly purpose has all but been forgotten. We've exchanged Romans for Dr. Ruth. Now they told us that if we would provide sex education, teen pregnancies would decrease. They lied. They told us if we would begin to teach our children the biology of sex at an earlier age, then the youth would not be promiscuous. They lied. They told us that we would not be so uptight about sex, people would develop stronger bonds to one another. Once again, they lied. The so-called experts have felt miserably at every point they pronounced their expertise, and they move further from accuracy with every pronouncement. Now in closing, I'd like to speak to the ladies, especially the young ladies. If you don't know that there are guys out there like this, I'm warning you of them this morning. If he won't wait until you are married to become physically involved with you, you are dealing with an Amnon who loves himself way more than he loves you. Those type of men are not looking for a wife to nourish and to cherish. They are just looking for a warm body to satisfy their sexual desires. For them, it's all about the chase and the conquest. I would tell any young woman that when men talk to you about love, if they are unwilling to wait God's time and do it God's way, they are only displaying lust. No man worth giving your love to will ask you to give something away that God doesn't allow. And if they ask me, but Pastor Bill, what if I've already failed in that area? I would tell them, from this point on, keep yourself sexually pure until a godly man loves you enough to put a ring on your finger. You see, sex is like a fire. If a fire is in its proper place in a fireplace, it is warm and it is beautiful. But if you move that exact same fire out six inches and out onto the carpet, you now have something deadly and destructive. We'll come back next week as we continue the sad saga of David's one hot night. And Father, it is always good to remember. You say these things are written for our admonishment, Lord, that we don't have to go through these things. We can learn from the mistakes of others and save ourselves all kinds of pain. I pray, Lord, we would take what we learned this morning and apply it to our lives, that we may walk pleasing according to your will. We ask in your name. Amen.